All right, welcome everyone. Welcome those in person, welcome those on live stream. We are going to be looking at lesson number 17 in Master Plan for Life, and that is page, we're going to start on page 157. 157, I think at the top there, does it say part two? Why am I here? Anybody got it open to that, page 157? just want to make sure that the version I have is the same as the version you have. Very good. 157. And the reason that we are, if you're alert, you notice that we skipped lesson 16. Last week we did lesson 15. There's still a lesson 16. And I mentioned at the end of our time last week that we would be doing this. And the answers to the homework that you were sent this week were for this lesson, lesson 17, rather than 16. And the reason is, because of all the weeks that we missed in January, we have to make up, uh, we have to do on a single week two lessons. So I had to determine which two lessons do I think I could do in one session. And I picked lessons 16 and 18. I think I can put those two together to, uh, to get that done. We'll see. So uh, with that then, uh, next week, you should do the homework for both, 16 and 18. And tonight we're doing 17. So sorry about the, the confusion, but that's the reason, which means that we have gone right into now part number two. Lesson 16 that we'll look at next week is the last one in part one. Part one was answering the question, who am I? And now you see at the top of page 157, part two, why am I here? And underneath that, it's the doctrine of the church. So as we go through this, you will see that our purpose for being here on earth is related to God's plan for His church. And that's why then the answer to that question is tied to the doctrine of the church. As we go through now the entirety of part number two, and that's 12 lessons, a full 12 lessons, are going to be answering that question, why am I here? And every one of those lessons in the upper right-hand corner, it's going to say the doctrine of the church. Because our purpose, why we're here, is all related to that. And you see we've got three sections for those 12 lessons. Sections 6, 7, and 8, the purpose of the church, the objectives of the church, and the destiny of the church. So the very first section is the purpose of the church. And if you turn to page 158, 158, then you see the introduction to the purpose of the church. Why am I here? I'm here to bring glory to God through the ministry of His Word. And we say on page 158, the church of Jesus Christ has been infected by the values of the culture in which we live. Local assemblies barely resemble the New Testament pattern that was established by Christ and the apostles. The people of God are part of the church, but have little understanding of its true nature. For some, it's a welfare organization. For others, an entertainment center. Still others, a social club. In the face of the confusion among God's people, it's no wonder that the world rejects the church as irrelevant. By far worse, as long as God's people are in this confused state, they cannot answer the question, why am I here? The believer's purpose in life is inseparable from the purpose of the church. Therefore, church members must learn a biblical philosophy of the church. They must gain a Bible-based understanding of the purpose and objectives of the church. And part two is going to explore the purpose, the objectives, and then the final destiny of the church. So if you'll turn to page 161, we'll get into lesson 17 then. Page 161, lesson 17. And you see at the top of page 161 that God has revealed Himself to humanity in, in history. So let me stop there for a second to remind you of something that I've said on Sundays before and I say in this lesson each time we go through it, that Christianity is a historical religion. That is, that the unfolding of God's plan and God's disclosure of Himself takes place in time, in, in history. And, and in fact, the truth or falsehood of Christianity is in part tied to those real historical events. So, for example, the resurrection of Jesus. That's a real thing that happened 2,000 years ago. And if the resurrection did not happen in history, was not a real event that happened, that people saw on earth, then Christianity is not true. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, often called the resurrection chapter, because all 58 verses in that chapter are about the resurrection, 
But he says in the, in the midst of that, verse 17, if Christ be not risen, your faith is futile. Your faith is in vain. So Christianity is tied to these kinds of things. Christianity is tied to an exodus from Egypt. You know, there's a Pharaoh, there's, there's bondage for 400 years for God's people, and there's Moses, and he goes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and there's the parting of the Red Sea, and there's all of that. And you've got people mentioned in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. You've got nations mentioned, and you've got wars that took place and events. And all of those things, at least to the extent that there is a secular record of those, and very often there is, then those confirm what the Bible says, that there were actually these people who lived during, during this time. You come to the New Testament, and how does your New Testament open? You know, with, in Luke's Gospel, he starts identifying people who existed and were major players in what was happening in the world at that time. So Caesar Augustus. You know, in those days, Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be taxed. And then he talks about not only a Caesar Augustus, then the emperor of Rome, but he talks about one named Quirinius, who's governor of, of Syria in Luke chapter 2. So you get all these people who are, just, who are named, real people. So Christianity, unlike a lot of other religions, you take Islam, Islam is a matter of, of you take Muhammad's word for it or you don't. The revelation was given to one guy. The Koran is all the writings of one person. So to falsify the Koran is impossible. It's either you believe what he's saying came from God or you don't. But in Christianity, you've got all of this stuff that if any of them were, could actually be proven to be false, Christianity would be false. Because Christianity stakes its claim upon God having revealed himself in the Bible... And the Bible is a recording of God's disclosure of Himself in, in history. So it is a historical religion. It's verifiable or falsifiable. Thankfully for us, it's never been able to be falsified because, in fact, uh, it is God's Word. So God has revealed Himself to humanity in history. And this self-revelation is contained in the Bible. In the current age, God is using the church as a tool to proclaim His revelation to mankind. The next three lessons will examine the purpose of the church. Therefore, this foundational lesson is going to look at the nature of history, the development of history, and the current age of history. So let's just think for a bit about the nature of, of history, the nature of time, the unfolding of events. The unfolding of events from the beginning, in the beginning God created. So from the beginning, creation, until the culmination at the end of time, everything that happens in between, including our little dash <laughs> that is our lives right now, the nature of history, everything that's go gone on and is going on and will go on. First of all, it has a unified plan. Secular society is increasingly convinced that the history of the universe is the product of chance, that the world is nothing more than an arena where individuals are victimized or favored by random circumstances. The consequences of this are pessimism and a sense of meaninglessness. The Bible, however, presents a very different picture of history. You know, from a biblical standpoint, there is, not only is history not random, there's nothing random. Nothing in the world, nothing today, nothing this evening, yesterday or tomorrow, Small, from small to great, none of it is random. Rather, all of it has been planned by God. So you have Jesus saying, Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Matthew 10, 29 and 30. You know, Jesus said there, he says that not a bird falls to the ground except it be by the will of your Father. So, you know, a bird dying is by the will of God. That would be a relatively small thing. I mean, unless you have a pet bird and it's your bird. But other than that, you know, some bird that you guys see all the time, right? On the side of the road, on the sidewalk, we see birds that have, that have died. And so birds die all the time. They all die by the will of God, according to Jesus. But then Jesus adds this, right after saying, Birds die by the will of your Father. 
he says this, and the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So he's and connecting, <laughs> meaning he's connecting that bird fall to the ground thing <laughs> to the number of hairs on your head and them falling out of your, out of your head. And the very hairs of your head are numbered. They're known by God. You put, it, you put that in context, it's saying that not a single hair comes out of your head except it be by the will of God. So we're not just talking about the big events of history. We're talking about the minutia of everything that happens is by the plan of God. And that's why then when you think about a verse like Romans 8.28, and we know that God works all things together for good, to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. When the Bible makes a promise like that, that God is controlling everything, that verse is telling you, reminding us that, yes, He works all things together for good. He controls everything. Nothing random. But it also tells you that that control, that plan, is all for the benefit of His people, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So it should be great assurance for us. We don't live in a random world. You read the paper, you go online, you listen to the cable, the news, Ukraine, Putin, nukes. I mean, all of that, right? Putin's appears to be losing it, if you ever had it. <laughs> I mean, if you've seen the pictures of him sitting at a table, and he's like literally like 20 feet, he's got a cluster of people, about 10 people clustered together at the end of a table, and he's down here by himself. So the speculation is he's freaked out about being poisoned or, or something like that. It's just the weirdest thing with the stuff that, this, that you know, this decision to go into Ukraine is a complete miscalculation. Uh, and I assume he's realizing that now, but he's not going to turn back. And he has, it's my understanding that he has the second largest arsenal of nuclear weapons in the world except for the U.S. So is he crazy enough to, do, to, to start something like that? You know, we don't know. And that is enough to give you some worry, give you some anxiety. You need to remember God's got it all, okay? Nothing random. And it's all ultimately for the benefit of His people. So history has a unified plan. Isaiah chapter 46, we have it listed for you there in your notes. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. Now, if you read over that fast, I make known the end from the beginning, you know, you may not get it, or at least I don't. I had to read, I have to, had to read it slowly years ago to say, okay, what's it saying? I make known the end from the beginning. That is, at the beginning, I tell you what the end's going to be. At the very beginning, before anything happens, I tell you how it's going to come out. This is the reason God can write a book, then, that's got the outcome in it. you got the final book, the book of Revelation. So it's bookends, right? Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning, and then you get the end in the book of Revelation, and it comes out exactly as God said, because He makes known the end from the beginning, and He controls everything in between. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said I will bring about, what I have planned I will, I will do. From a passage like that in Isaiah 46 we see history is in fact the outworking of God's will and history is, is already established in the mind of God. God knows where it's going because God planned where it's going. And that truth about history is rooted in the attribute of God's authority that we saw back in way back in lesson 2. So history has a unified plan and it's God's plan and history has an ultimate goal. Some religious groups believe that history is cyclical. Meaning it just goes in cycles, in circles. They believe the events of history repeat themselves over and over in unending cycles. Now you guys have heard before that those uh, that, that history tends to repeat itself, uh, or, or just history repeats itself. It is certainly true that because you know, human beings, frankly, are foolish, <laughs> that we make the same mistakes over and over again. You know, so, so again, the Putin uh, illustration, 
Uh, I said on our podcast last week, we were talking about Ukraine, Pastor Larry and I, and I said, you know, we should ban all analogies to Hitler because they're all overdone. You know, there's only one Hitler, and I think there probably won't be another like Hitler until we have the Antichrist uh, at the end, and then he will have a holocaust of his own. But there is this at least, uh, there is at least the similarity between what Hitler motivated Hitler and what motivates Putin, and that is they both came from countries that were humiliated internationally, humiliated. So Germany in World War I was humiliated by its loss, and Hitler was a part of that. And he hated that, and he wanted to restore the glory of Germany. And so the Third Reich, you guys have heard that, that Hitler's regime was called the Third Reich. That's the Third German Kingdom that he was trying to establish, reestablish the glory of, of Germany. And he got the German people jazzed about that because they felt humiliated too. I mean, World War I had only happened a few decades before World War II, and they felt that humiliation. Here comes a guy and tells you, you're the greatest race on earth, and we can take it back, and we can have the third right. And Putin, likewise, when the Soviet Union crumbled in the early 90s, you know, this was an empire that was parallel to the United States. And you had the Cold War for all of those years, and they lost the Cold War, and the thing broke up. The Soviet Union is broken up. And so they were humiliated, and Putin has said that this is the worst catastrophe in the history of the world to have the Soviet Union break up. So he, would, he wants to reestablish that. And getting Ukraine back under his fold is, is part of that. That's why these other countries are rightly concerned that it might not stop at, at Ukraine. So history repeats itself because people are foolish. <laughs> Putin's doing a similar thing to what, to what Hitler, Hitler did. But it's not unending cycles. Yes, there is repetition. Somebody has said, if it doesn't repeat itself, it at least rhymes. <laughs> History does. And, and that's true. But it doesn't go in undenied. There's an end to it. This worldview does not believe there's a goal to be reached. The idea of reincarnation is an example of that cyclical view of history. It just keeps going, going, going. The biblical view, however, is linear. Now, you guys have, uh, you guys have watched, heard of The Lion King? Lion King's one of you know it had a bunch of music in it that became quite popular. One of the songs is the Circle of Life. Have you ever thought about that from a biblical standpoint? <laughs> you know the Circle of Life, and it just goes through the food chain, and it just keeps going through the circles. Laney and I, uh, I get one, I get one big date with my daughters, each of my daughters, a year, and they they get to choose what they want to do. And because they're completely different, they choose completely different things. So Annie wants to go to a football game. So we go to a U of M football game, and then we go out to eat. And Lainey wants to go to a play, something theatrical. So we went uh, last month to the Detroit Opera House to see The Lion King. And uh, it, was, it was spectacular. It really had a great time. And then we went to the fancy restaurant called Mario's. If you've never been to Mario's, Mario's is really good in Detroit. So we had, we had a great time. But, you know, I just sort of have to suffer through some of the philosophy that goes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that, you know, as they're singing these songs and all that, I'm thinking, you know, that would make a good blog post. I'm going to write a blog post about that. <laughs> but here's one of the, here's one of the uh, verses in the circle of life. There's far too much to take in here, more to find that can ever be found. But the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round. Notice the endless round. So this circle of life is endless. And it just keeps going and going and, and going. But from a biblical standpoint, of course, that's not true. There is, it's linear, and there is an end to, an appointed end to history. Top of page 162, the events of history are moving in a planned and orderly fashion toward an established goal. Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul writes, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Notice, the times have a fulfillment. They're going to reach their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So there is a goal to history, and everything is moving inexorably toward that goal. 
and everything's going to be brought under, in unity under heaven and earth under God. So, number two, the goal of history is the kingdom of Christ. When Christ came the first time, He proclaimed a kingdom message. That's why when you, you know, read the Gospels, you keep hearing that over and over, man, the, the kingdom, the kingdom. You know, Matthew, a ton about the kingdom, the kingdom parables about the kingdom. And Gospel of Luke, talking a lot about the kingdom. Then you come to the book of Acts, like we're going through on Sunday morning, and Luke wrote the book of Acts. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, he writes the, gospel, or the book of Acts, and by the time Jesus ended his earthly ministry at the end of the Gospel of Luke, there's, okay, he ascended back to the Father, what about this kingdom? <laughs> I mean, okay, he died on the cross, he's raised, we saw him, we the apostles saw him alive, he's given us these instructions to go to all the world, but what about the kingdom? And that's exactly where Acts starts, if you remember. In the book of Acts, they say in verse number 6, they say to Jesus, they say to him before he ascends back to the Father, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go into Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now this is important what I'm saying uh, about the kingdom and what Jesus says about it there in Acts chapter 1. It's, I think it's very important for you to know, Jesus does not say to those guys, hey, I've been with you for teaching you intensely for three and a half years. And you still don't get it about the kingdom, do you? You still don't get it that there's not really going to be a kingdom like the first part of the Bible said. That the kingdom is now something different. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. He doesn't say that. That would have been an opportune time for him to say that, wouldn't it? When they say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When they say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, what are they talking about? They're talking about the kingdom that they knew about from the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. A kingdom that a guy like David, King David, presided over. That's the reason it has to be restored, because it was lost. And they're, and they're waiting for that. And they're waiting for the Messiah to come. A king in David's line. Jesus is that. He's the one. You're going to do it now? And Jesus says, don't worry about the time. That's still going to happen. But Jesus says, don't worry about the time. The time will come, come later. So when He came the first time, He proclaimed the kingdom message. He presented Himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies regarding the perfect prophet, priest, and king. That message was rejected by Israel at the time according to the plan of God. Even at His ascension, as I just said, they still expected Him to establish the kingdom, Acts 1.6. In the future, that kingdom will be established and it will entail many aspects and we will see these in one of the last few lessons of Master Plan for Life. So this means, since I believe that God in the first part of the Bible gave great detail, if you are ever interested in the kingdom, there's a couple of books that you could read. Now, they're both like that thick, okay? But they're that thick because they are just going through what the Bible says about the kingdom. And they're really thick because the Bible says a lot about the kingdom. <laughs> One's called The Greatness of the Kingdom. And it gives everything the Bible says about how in the kingdom the world will be completely transformed in every aspect, economically, morally, spiritually, politically, physically, everything. So if you go through that and you see what God promised that kingdom to be, and somebody tells you, hey, the kingdom is now, you're going, really? Okay, you really need to take a close look at what the Bible said the kingdom's going to be. And then there's another book, He, he Shall Reign Forever. He Shall Reign Forever uh, by Michael Vlach, V-L-A-C-H, V-L-A-C-H. That's an updated version of The Greatness of the Kingdom by McLean. But anyway, both those books go through every verse that talks about the kingdom in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. When you come away from that, you see, wow, the kingdom really is great, and it ain't here yet, and I really look forward to when it does come. So that means I'm a premillennialist. We'll talk about this in a later lesson, but that means the millennium is the kingdom. It's another word for the kingdom, thousand years. And pre means 
Jesus comes prior to the establishment of the kingdom. The king comes back and he establishes the kingdom. But you've got people who don't believe the pre part and many people who don't believe in the millennial part. So they're called amillennialist. Ah, meaning no millennium, no kingdom, because it's spiritual. Say they. And there are a lot of people who say this, a lot of good people. I mean, they're Christian people, preachers that are really good preachers. They believe the gospel, all of that. But it's just, don't get me started, okay? <laughs> I'll get to it when we get to, that last, we get to that last lesson a bit. So premillennial is the right way to go, okay? And, um, and amillennial is not. And postmillennial definitely is not. Postmillennial is that the kingdom is being built. And Jesus will come post after the kingdom is. So we, the work of the gospel will triumph, and then the king will come back and inherit this kingdom that has been established on, on earth. Well, if we're moving in that direction, you could, you know, you could fool me. Okay? Uh, and one of, the, one of the dangers of that optimistic view of history is that if you believe that things are supposed to get better and they don't, which they aren't, <laughs> right, in a fallen world, then from a governmental standpoint, what has happened throughout history is those with a utopian view, uto there's a utopia that we can create. The Soviet Union was that. We're going to create a utopia where the working man, everybody is equal, everybody shares everything equally, communal, thus communism, right? We're going to have this, this beautiful future, but we can't quite get there until we get all the mess straightened out. So in order to make an omelet, you know, you got to crack a few eggs. And so if you have to kill several million people, Stalin, to get there, it's all for a good end. So totalitarian regimes are always utopian. They always have this false positive view of the future. The best governments are the governments that are not utopian, but are realistic about human nature. The reason the United States form of government is the best there is, is because our constitution is realistic about sinful people. And so it creates a structure that keeps everybody in check. The president can't get too powerful. The Congress can't be too powerful. The Supreme Court checks and balances. What a brilliant idea. But you know why they did that? It's because they knew people were evil. And there isn't going to be any utopia. There isn't going to be any kingdom on this, this earth with fallen people running it. All right. So history has a unified plan. It's got an ultimate goal, which is the kingdom, and it has a singular purpose. There are historians and philosophers who hold a linear view of history that's not biblical. So it is linear, but it's not the biblical end, the biblical purpose. They depart from the biblical view in this realm of purpose. All inferior explanations of history, whether sacred or secular, suffer from the same flaw. They have a mankind-centered purpose for all things. A biblical view of history is always God-centered. Theologians call this the doxological view of history from the Greek word doxa, which means glory, so the glory of God. When we sing the doxology, which we did, did we do that Sunday? The doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Pray, okay, so we call it the doxology because glory or praise is from this Greek word doxa. This is the teaching that God works in history to make His character, His attributes known to created beings so that He will receive their praise, that He'll receive the glory. So, you know, that kingdom that is the end game, the reason the kingdom's the end game is because that all works together to bring glory, glory to God. The universe is to bring glory to God. Romans eleven thirty six: From Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. 
So the universe is to bring glory to God, and all activities of mankind are to bring glory to God, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do. You do it all to display the character of God, the glory of God, what God is like. The work of salvation is not an end in itself. Did you guys, did you guys ever thought about that? That the work of saving people is not the end. A lot of times we think that's the end, that, that like God exists to save people. No, God saves people in order for God to receive glory. Everything God does, God does for His, His glory. And yes, our salvation is a major way that He does that. And the Bible says as much. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, but why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Now note, some argue that this is egotistical, and so it's beneath God to make the purpose of the, the glory of God. But it has to be remembered that God, like us, is infinitely worthy of such praise. And so when you get to the book of Revelation, that's what you have, that praise being rendered to, to God. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and, and praise. Because He is worthy... God's justice requires that he seek his own praise. Now, you, need to, you could just go to bed tonight and just think about that one line. Just lay in bed and think about that. Because he is worthy, then the justice of God requires that he pursue his own, his own praise. It's saying that it would be unjust of God. For God, it would not be right for God to do anything other than to pursue ultimately His own glory because He is infinitely worthy of that. The more God-centered you get in your thinking, the more you find yourself starting with God and ending with God and everything in between is about God, which is the best thing that could ever happen to the way you think, friends, is for you to become completely God-centered in the way you view yourself, your world, your circumstances, other people, everything. All right. That's the nature of history. Now the development of history. How is it, you know, that's what God is doing with history. That's what it's about. But how has He structured it? How has He structured history so that it develops? God's used different means or systems of management to accomplish His plan and purpose. These differing management applications are known as dispensations. And history has been managed by God through dispensations. Now what does that term mean? A dispensation is a stewardship arrangement. The biblical word contains the idea of administration or management. The features of a stewardship arrangement are illustrated in a parable that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 12. And you see in that parable that He gave, it's an arrangement between two parties. The steward is given responsibilities and is held accountable, and changes can be, can be made in the arrangement. So here's a working definition of what we mean by a dispensation. A dispensation is a stewardship arrangement in which God reveals His will to mankind, which is then responsible for obedience to that revelation. All right, now let me try to put it in English. So a dispensation, it's an administration, it's a stewardship arrangement, you see all of that. Uh, the reason we use the word dispensation is because it goes back to the King James Version. Uh, if you were to look at uh, Ephesians chapter Three, for example, Ephesians chapter three and verse two, Ephesians three and verse two, in the NIV, Paul says there that let me tell you about the administration. That's the word the NIV uses: the administration of God's grace that's been entrusted to me. The administration. Now, if you take Ephesians three and verse two and you look in the King James, he says, "I'm going to tell you about the dispensation." So instead of administration, it says dispensation. So administrating, managing, dispensation, these are all the same thing. And practically speaking, what does it mean? The Greek word that's translated in the King James dispensation, NIV, administration, is this. Here's the Greek word. Oikonomos. Oikonomos. It's a combination of two Greek words. Oikos and namos, oikonomos. Oikos. Now, you guys, if you go to the grocery store, if you buy yogurt, isn't there, there's a yogurt called o Oikos, isn't it? Right, there is. No, Oikos, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Anybody got a phone? Look it up while I'm... Yeah, there is a brand <laughs> of yogurt called Oikos. And, uh, and it means, it's Greek for house. It means house. Namas is uh, law or rule or order. So oikonomos, house, law, house rule, house order. Here's the idea. The world is God's house. And God gives different rules, orders, laws for how it's to be managed. That's what a dispensation, that's what an administration is. So, there have been, have there not, throughout, throughout history, different administrations, different dispensations where God has given different rules for how things are supposed to go? I mean, just think about what you know about the way the Bible's unfolded. Right at the very beginning, you've got a completely different set of rules. <laughs> you've got the first man and woman in a perfect garden. And the rules are keep and take care of it, be fruitful and multiply, and don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that's not the rule for you, is it? So you can see that the arrangements can be changed. They have been changed. The first dispensation was in the garden. That was the first house order, house rule, dispensation, administration. This is what God told them to do. That's what they were responsible for. We know they failed, right? And then, you know, later, a lot later, uh, God gives the law through Moses. And the law had, and the law is laid out in detail in the books of the law after Genesis. So you get Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? Deuteronomy, they got all of these laws for the priests and the tabernacle and sacrifice and all of that. That's the way God has ordered His house, under the law. It's not the way it is now, right? So you've got the garden, you've got the law, you come to the time of Christ and, and Christ dies on the cross and the time that we're living in, and God gives us our instructions for what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to repent and we're supposed to believe and we're supposed to carry out the Great Commission. That's what He's told us to do. So that's another administration, a third one at least. And then in the future, there's going to be another one, a final one. You've got the kingdom. And the kingdom's not going to be precisely like any of them that we've seen as yet. So traditional dispensationalists uh, have seven. They see seven dispensations in the Bible, seven. I just named four for you. And the reason I named those four it's because those four are like irrefutable. I mean, really, it, the garden's like a different thing, right? The law is a different thing. We're in a unique dispensation now. The kingdom will be a different thing. You've got at least four of these management administration systems. Now, the other three, there's not a whole lot said about them in Scripture, and that's why I don't, it doesn't matter whether you believe in seven or six or five, frankly. The concept that God has dealt with people differently at different times is the idea. The other three, in case you're wondering, are uh, civil government. So after the time of so-called innocence in the garden, then you have Noah, and God gives Noah instructions for civil government to rule his, his world. And now mankind is going to be responsible to have rules and laws and regulations and those kinds of things. He says in Genesis 9, 6, that whoever sheds man's blood will have his own blood shed because in the image of God... God made man. Capital punishment. God institutes that civil government. And then you have, uh, after, after that, you have the time of conscience um, where the spirit is, is, is binding the conscience of people in order to keep them from just doing anything that they, they might, might want. So God says in Genesis 6 that my spirit will not always strive with man, will not always contend with with man. And then you have the time of Abraham that's called the dispensation of promise. Promise. God makes the promise to Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth are going to be going to be blessed. So you've got those three. I put them out of order. It's actually conscience, civil government, promise. So innocence, conscience, civil government, promise, law, the church age that we're in, and then the kingdom.
those seven. Whether you believe in seven, you got to believe in four. All right, back to page 163. Now the relationship between God's revelation and these dispensations, His will has been revealed progressively. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God's will for mankind, given in His Word, was not completely revealed as a single point. Instead, He's revealed a little at a time throughout the years of history. This fact accounts for the diversity of human responsibilities as God has worked out His plan. For example, the nation of Israel worshipped differently than Abraham, and believers today worship differently than Israel did. So it's been revealed progressively, and it contains both eternal principles and temporary programs. For example, the principle of capital punishment was taught early in human history and was repeated, though, in later dispensations. So I mentioned Genesis 9-6, but it's also mentioned in the New Testament. In Romans 13, it's therefore a continuing principle. But then there are instructions concerning animal sacrifices that were only intended to be temporary in nature. And then I say here that the Bible uh, reveals seven dispensations in history, as I already talked about. So you see the re- um, that history has been managed by these dispensations, and there have been several of them. Generally, dispensations agree there are seven that can be identified in the Bible. They're identified by significant new revelation from God that changes or adds to mankind's responsibility. Since that revelation in each dispensation is built upon the previous one, it can be viewed as kind of a staircase with each successive dispensation building on the previous. Like I said, if you don't want to believe in seven, it's okay with me. If you, if you can get less than four, let me know. But there's, there's got to be at least four. And then last, the current age of history. So we are in the sixth of the seventh, or the third of the four, depending on how you, how you want to do it. We're in the church dispensation. The Apostle Paul referred to the current age as the age of grace. It's also known as the church age. I prefer the church age because God's grace has always been operative in all dispensations. But the church has not. The church is the new thing in this dispensation. So you've got this Greek word that's translated church in your New Testament. It's ekklesia. You see it there. In general use, it just refers to an assembly of of people. So in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, because Paul is in Ephesus and he is preaching the gospel, there's a riot. You guys remember there was a riot in Acts chapter 19? And And the riot was led by the craftsmen who who made trinkets, and they sold these things. They made their living by selling stuff related to the worship of Diana of the Ephesians, a goddess named Diana. Well, now Paul comes, and he says, Jesus is God, and you're not supposed to be worshiping a pagan goddess named Diana, and that's going to put these guys out of business. So there's a riot. And the group of people that gathers for the riot are called the church. (laughs) It's It's the word ecclesia. So the word ecclesia in general just means a gathering of people, an assembly of people. Now, I've been in churches that look like a riot like like that, but (laughs) thankfully not this one. (laughs) So that's what we mean when we say, number one, there. In general use, it's just an assembly of people. But in technical use, the New Testament applies the term to believers in this age. And it can refer to all believers in in what is called the church, capital C, the body of Christ. So here's an example of it, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized by one Spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and all given the one Spirit to drink. Now, the next lesson, Lesson 18, next week, we're going to look at that use. That's what that lesson's about, the body of Christ, the church as the universal body of Christ. Not the church located in Trenton, not the church located in any particular city, but the church universal, everybody who belongs to Jesus. We'll see that next week, along with Lesson 16. But then the other way it's used, and most of the time when the word ecclesia, and you see the word church in your New Testament, the overwhelming number of times it's this last one, the bottom of page 164, a local assembly, the local church. So in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, when it says, to the church of God, to the ecclesia of God, in Corinth. Well, okay, that's a location, right? That's a particular assembly of people. 
In lesson 19, we'll look at that. So when did, if the church is a new dispensation, when did it come around? Top of page 165. The time of the church. The concept of the church and the teachings in the New Testament concerning the church are unique to this age. It was not foreseen in the Old Testament. Paul indicates that the church was a concept hidden in the mind of God. And so it was unknown even to the Old Testament prophets, but now it's been revealed and explained through Paul's letters, Paul's epistles. Because it was unforeseen, it's referred to as a mystery. So notice Ephesians 3 here. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my, that is Paul's, insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. So the first part of your Bible, what are we focused on? A nation, Israel, right? And now you come to the New Testament, and after the day of Pentecost, we'll see, middle of page 165, you have this new thing formed that was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was not something that was known, but has now been revealed in the New Testament, and particularly through the, the Apostle Paul. It began on the day of Pentecost. That was predicted by Jesus. He said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now notice when Jesus says this, He says, I will build my church. This is the future to when Jesus is talking. The fact that the church began at this time underscores the truth that the church is not Israel. The church was initiated by Christ. It's unique to this age. It has unique objectives in what we call the Great Commission that we'll see in future lessons, Matthew 28. So that's the time of the church. It wasn't in the Old Testament. It started in, on the day of, of Pentecost. And the purpose of the church, it's already been stated that the purpose of all history and the obligation that rests upon all people is to glorify God. And so that's no different for the church, of course. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. But the question has to be asked, how is the church specifically intended to glorify God? So you guys see the, the question here, right? Because if everybody's to glorify God, and if that's been God's purpose and is always God's purpose for everything, and it is, well then it's not enough to just say we're supposed to glorify God. Because Moses was supposed to glorify God. And Abraham was supposed to glorify God. Everybody in every dispensation is supposed to glorify God. The question now is, how do we go about doing that? How has God given, ordered His house, such that we display the character of God? Ephesians 3.10 that we read just a little bit ago, Ephesians 3.10, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. So how uniquely does the church do this? Page 166, the church glorifies God first as guardian of His truth. So here is Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Well, what's God's household? It's the church of the living God, and the church of the living God is the pillar of and the foundation of the truth. Well, okay, wow, <laughs> that's big. So God establishes the church, and He gives the church the responsibility to guard the truth that He's entrusted to it. The pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, when that verse, 1 Timothy 3.15, talks about the church of the living God, God's household, the pillar and foundation of the truth, when it talks about those three things. And you guys heard me say earlier that the word church is used a couple of ways for believers. One is the universal church, and then the other is the local church, right? 
So now you should ask yourself, which way is it being used here? The word church is used, church of the living God. It's equated with God's household and being the pillar and foundation of the truth. Is it talking about the universal church? Talking about the local church? Well, you know, initially you would be inclined, my guess is, most of us would be inclined to say, that's got to be the universal church. (laughs) But no. It turns out in the context, we're talking about the local church. Because notice how the verse starts. If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And it actually says, just before if I am delayed, if you look up 1 Timothy 3.15, which I am doing now, it says something very important. 1 Timothy 3.15, or excuse me, 3.14, then we go into 15. 3.14. Although I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, this is Paul, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. All right. So he says, I'm writing you these instructions so that you'll know what to do. Because if I can't make it, I want you to have a written record of what you're supposed to be doing. That's what he's saying. Now, the question then is, what are these instructions? If I, I, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so you'll know how God's household, God's church is supposed to go and how people are supposed to behave, conduct themselves. So what are those instructions? Well, if you look at the passages just before that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. In fact, a couple of you have your Bibles open, but if you look at chapter 2, if your Bible's laid out like mine, just before chapter 2 starts, there's like a a heading. Mine says instructions on worship. What does yours say? Do you got a heading just before Uh, chapter 2? Before chapter 2? Yeah, right right at the top. Okay. Okay. Okay, there you go. Women instructed, overseers and deacons. Women instructed, and if you read what they're instructed about, it's how to worship when you come together. And overseers and deacons are pastors and deacons. So who can be pastors and deacons? Anybody else got First Timothy 2 open? No? Okay. Mine says instructions on worship at the beginning. And then you go down to, he gives instructions on worship, like Ron said. And then you come to chapter 3, and it gives the qualifications for pastors and deacons and deacons' wives. Well, where does all that happen? In the local church, right? In the local church. It's it's not talking about the universal church. And so then when you come all the way to verse 14 of chapter 3, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how people are to conduct themselves. This is what's to happen when you come together for worship. This is who's to be leaders in the church, pastors and, and deacons. This is how the life of the church is supposed to go in the local church. So 1 Timothy 3.15 is saying the local church, each local church before God, has been charged with being the pillar and foundation of the truth, guardians of the truth. The church guards the truth through careful exposition of God's Word and consistent exposure of falsehood. That is a heady responsibility, friends, isn't it? So when churches get together and don't do that, if pastors stand up on Sunday and don't do that, okay, now what? We're defying what God said the church is supposed to be about. And that whole exposure of falsehood, the reason you'll hear me kick you know, Joel Olstein every now and then or something like that, is because God said to. <laughs> now, Joel didn't get any you know, ink in the Bible, just other the general category of like false teacher. <laughs> okay, But look at what it says. An elder must, Titus chapter 1, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So the church glorifies God as guardian of the truth and by fulfilling its mission to pass on the truth to future generations. 
again, staying with Timothy. You know, we have 1 Timothy 3 there. Now we've got 2 Timothy chapter 2. Do you know why, if we want to know what the church is really about, we would go to Titus and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy? Because those three books, and only those three books in your New Testament, are called the pastoral letters. They are letters written by Paul to pastors. And he's telling them this is the way it's supposed to go. So if you want instruction about what the church is supposed to be, you go to, you go to those letters. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says famously, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So notice the progression of thought. The truth is passed from Paul to Timothy, and then Timothy passes it to reliable people, and through them then, it goes to others. So you have this generational ministry. The first generation is Paul. Second is Timothy. Third is these reliable people. And then many generations after that to others. The fulfillment of that responsibility means that doctrine is going to be the primary focus of church ministry. Doctrine. Truth. That's why if you've got a church that's like serious about that, you, you would do something like this, just something like this. You would say, hey, if you join our church, we're really going to push you, we're going to urge you to take a class called Master Plan for Life. Okay, So you can go through some doctrine. So you can go through some theology about the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the Bible and of man and sin and of Christ and of salvation and now of the church. That's why we do that. This is why we do that, because God says to. That's what establishes you in your Christian life. It establishes the church then in its corporate life. And that's why you would have another foundational class, something like how to get the most out of your Bible, so that everybody knows how to fumble around in the Bible. Everybody knows where the books of the Bible are and how the storyline goes and all of that. I mean, why should we have a church of people who attend and don't know that stuff? Because that's what we're supposed to to be about. So we, so we do. It requires doctrine. And that's why 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy, again, see, we're still in the pastoral epistles, pastoral letters, 2 Timothy. And this is in chapter 4. Now here's what's important about 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy only has four chapters in it. So this is the last chapter of 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is the last book that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. So this is the last chapter of the last book that he ever wrote. You guys remember right after, we've got verses 2 and 3 that we'll read here in a second, but you remember right after verses 2 and 3 what verses 6, 7, and 8 say? The time of my departure is at hand. I have run the race. I have fought the, the good fight. And he says, now there is therefore laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord will give, not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. You guys remember that? The time of my departure is in. Paul is under arrest. He's in jail yet again when he writes that. And it's shortly after that that Paul's executed. So 2 Timothy chapter 4 is significant because it's the last chapter of the last book that Paul would write. Now, if you're writing, you know you're going to be executed. And you're writing your last words. Whatever those last words are are going to be really important, don't you think? Would you guys agree? And notice what these last words are. Preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. And be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. Here's why the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. The reason I have to command this to you is I am on, in effect, my deathbed. And I know the time has come for me and I'm passing the baton on to you. And the reason I'm telling you, Timothy, preach the word. Just before that, that's verse 2. The verse before that is verse 1, and Paul sets the stage for poor Timothy, man, making it very solemn. He says, Timothy, in the presence of God 
and Christ Jesus. I give you this solemn charge. Preach the word. So if you're Timothy, you get that. You're going, okay. He's going to die. He's giving me the baton. I need to lead his church. And this is what we're supposed to be about. In good times and in bad times. And the reason I'm having to tell you this in these solemn terms is because the time will come when people won't like it. And you're going to need to remember that's what you're about. That's what you do. You do it when people like it. You do it when people don't like it. Because that's what God has entrusted to His people. The purpose of the church then is to glorify God through the ministry of His Word. All right. Next week, we're going to try to do two lessons, 16 and 18. If you can do the homework for both of those, we'll send you the answers to the homework for both. And as I say, we'll see if we have enough time to get through both of them. Okay? All right. Thanks.